coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at My Bookie. Looking to bring the new year in in style this year? Well, there's no better place to do that than with MyBookie. Just go to MyBookie.ag and use our promo code UGA while you still can, and you get a 50% bonus on your first deposit. You want to hurry, guys. We're trying to get them to extend the promo deal through the college basketball season, but I can't guarantee it's going to happen. So if you've been waiting, literally, now is the time. Jump on it before the deal is gone. Promo code UGA at mybookie.ag gives you a 50% bonus on your first deposit for all new users. But all right, guys, you know the drill. I am your host, Tyler. I'm back in town, and it is time to recap Georgia's 63-3 soul-crushing obliteration of Florida State in the Orange Bowl yesterday. We're going to cover this from every angle possible, but first... I do want to quickly just wish everyone a very, very happy new year and just reiterate to all of you once again just how much we appreciate you. We really sincerely do. We have broken every record we've ever set for this podcast this year, and that is only because of each and every one of you who keep coming back week after week, month after month, and for a lot of you, year after year. It's still really hard for me to believe where this podcast has gotten to, not that we're like some big deal in the podcasting ecosystem, but considering where we started back in 2015, when we had like 20 listeners an episode, it really is surreal to think about where this podcast has gotten to here, what, almost a decade later. And absolutely none of that is possible without all of you guys. I truly do love doing this podcast. I've said it many times before, we are no different than any of you out there. We are just a couple of diehard Georgia fans who live and breathe this stuff. And I'm just so thankful that all of you give us the opportunity to be able to do this. So whether you just found us this year, you just found us a couple of weeks ago, whether you've been with us for a couple of years, whether you've been with us from the very get-go, because I know a lot of you are out there, we so much appreciate you guys. And just please accept this very heartfelt thank you on behalf of everyone here at the Glory UGA podcast. And we have some exciting stuff coming up this year. We started some video content on YouTube over the summer. I have to admit, I'll take the blame for this. I fell off with that during the season because I'm only one man and I only have so much time. I promise you I tried. I really did. I tried, but I just couldn't make it happen on a consistent basis. But I think I've been able to kind of adjust some things and we're going to be able to make that happen next year. That's the plan. I mean, the plan is to get back to the video content this offseason, like in, as in like the next couple of weeks. And on top of that, we are also working on some other very exciting expansions of our coverage. I'll give you guys some more details on that later in the offseason as that becomes a little bit more clear as we kind of like set things up how we want to be set up. I'll, I'll roll that stuff out, but stay tuned. That stuff is coming. And also, real quick, before we get to the Orange Bowl breakdown, Curtis wanted me to pass along his apologies. I want him to be on today's episode. He wanted to be on today's episode. I mean, who doesn't want to be on the episode where we get to break down a 63-3 victory over another Power 5 opponent, a top 5 Power 5 opponent in the country. Everyone would want to be on that show, right? But Curtis and his new bride are hosting a New Year's murder mystery party tonight. So 
he obviously had things to take care of and is not going to be able to be on. I am the loser who is just hanging out at home, rewatching the Orange Bowl all day and other bowl games that I missed from Friday. So you guys are stuck with me. But you guys know I've got you covered. And let's go ahead and do this, man. Let's get into this breakdown. I told y'all to bet the house on the dogs to cover the 19 and a half last week. I told you guys, I even going back like two weeks ago when it was only 14. I mean, at that point, I was like, go all in, everything. You guys know I never, ever bet on Georgia. One time in my life, I actually put a real life bet on the Georgia Bulldogs, and that was to beat Alabama in the 2022 National Championship game. It's some voodoo, hocus pocus superstition that I have, but even I was willing to disregard those superstitions in this isolated case because I, I just simply knew, guys, there's no way in hell that Florida State was going to have any chance to cover that spread, let alone win the game. And I mean, once the spread moved to 19, I mean, obviously you don't like it as much as I did at 14, which is where I got it at, but I loved it. I still, I mean, you still take that all day. I mean, I was going to take that up to three touchdowns. That was my word to all, all my buddies. Hey, after three touchdowns, take that. So what did I do? I put the money on Georgia minus 14, team total over 29 and a half. And I put money on the overall over because I felt that we would cover the over ourselves. And you know what? We did. So I felt a beatdown was coming, but I'm not going to lie to you guys. I didn't see that type of beatdown coming. I didn't see a record-breaking 63-3 beatdown, but a record-breaking 63-3 beatdown it was. And guys, I mean, think about this. Think about how badly we beat that team yesterday. Yes, 63-3, you would think that would tell you all you need to know, but I don't think that even truly gets to just how much we dominated that football game. Guys, we could have scored 80-plus points in that team if we wanted to. If we wanted to, we could have scored 80-plus points. We could have put up 800, 900 yards if we wanted to. But at the end of the day, it was 63-3, 36 first downs for Georgia to 11 for Florida State. We more than tripled their first down output, 673 yards to 209 total yards for Florida State. That's the third time this season that the Georgia offense has gone for over 600 yards in a single game. And for all of my Bobo haters who came out of hiding after the SEC Championship loss to Alabama, that is a feat, 600 yards in a single game that we never accomplished one single time under Todd Bunkin in three years. Bobo did it three times in his first year as our OC. But hey, you do you. But back to the matter at hand. 372 rushing yards, which is the most rushing yards a Georgia team has put up since 2018, five years ago, when we rushed for 426 against UMass. That's the most rush yards against a Power 5 opponent since 2017, when we rushed for 381 against Kentucky. All of that in route to, yes, as I said earlier, the biggest margin of victory in bowl history, breaking the record that, oh yeah, the Georgia Bulldogs set last year in the national championship game, the 65-7 victory over TCU. And oh yeah, we did that in a game in which we took our starting quarterback out at halftime. Carson Beck did not take one single snap in the second half, and we took basically every other offensive starter out after the first drive of the second half. So when I say beat down, I mean beat down. I tweeted out last week ahead of this game that what we were going to do to Florida State on December 30th 
was going to be borderline criminal. And it was. What we did to the Seminoles yesterday was illegal in 39 states. I mean, lock us up, y'all. We just committed a murder on live television. We went all Jack Ruby on their asses. If you know, you know. But yeah, I mean, just an utter domination of Florida State, guys. There's no other way to put that. But as great as it was, I have to admit, as awesome as it was to watch us just take the life out of Florida State yesterday to just choke them out, it was admittedly bittersweet for me. Because no one will ever be able to convince me that we are not one of the four best teams in the country this year. And I still cannot stomach the reality that we are not even being allowed to play for a national championship, despite the fact that we are so obviously one of the four best teams in the country because of the failures, the inconsistencies, and the biases of the Coswell Playoff Committee. This is a complete and utter failure on their part. And you know, over the last 24 hours or so, I keep hearing people say that our performance yesterday in the Orange Bowl proves that we should have been in the college football playoff. No. What proved that was what we did over the course of the other 13 games. The only people who don't recognize that are the ignorant and the partisan. What proved that we were one of the four best teams in the country were the 2,904 yards that we outgained our opponents by this season. The widest yardage margin in the country, bar none. What proved that we were one of the four best teams in the country this year was the 24 and a half points that we outscored our opponents by this season. What proved that was us beating Ole Miss and Missouri. Two teams are going to finish inside the top eight nationally by a combined score of 82 to 38. What proved that we are one of the four best teams in the country all year was us outscoring Power 5 teams with a winning record through the first 13 games by a combined score of 226 to 131. But now, after the 63-3 beatdown of Florida State, everyone else is saying out loud, what I've been screaming the past month, y'all have heard me on here. I've been a little unhinged, right? Yeah, I can own that. Probably more than a little unhinged. Because I know, I know, just like you know, that we are one of the four best teams in the country. And I haven't been afraid to scream it. I haven't been afraid to get here on, the, on this podcast, fire up the mic, and tell everyone we are still one of the four best teams in the country. We got screwed. Oh, but hey, he's just a, a host of a Georgia podcast. He's just a homer. Of course he's going to say that. But not after yesterday. Now everyone in the country is saying what I've been saying for the past month. Hell, even the broadcasters, even Joe Tess and Jesse Palmer were saying it live yesterday. I was watching the rewatch today and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right guys. Been saying that for a month. The reality is guys, Florida State wasn't the one who got screwed by the Coswell Playoff Committee on December 3rd. We were. Georgia was the one who got screwed. We were number one going into championship weekend. We lose by three to one of the other four best teams in the country as defined by the college playoff committee, the omniscient 13, when we were not even close to full strength, which, hey, you know what happens. Everybody's injured. You know, you got you to play. You got to deal with it next man up. But we weren't close to full strength in a game that despite how poorly we played, and we played poorly, poorly that's on us. But despite that, we still would have won if it were not for an egregiously blown call that changed the outcome of the game. Let's not bury our heads in the sand. It's okay to say it out loud. That's what happened. That's not excuse making. That is reality. Those are the facts. That is what happened. It's really indisputable. And look, as we said on the SEC Championship Recap episode, we lost that game. That's on us. We did not bring our A game. That was on us. We didn't play well. That 
is on us. But losing that game to Alabama by three under dubious circumstances, that means that Georgia's no longer one of the four best teams in the country? The committee watched that game, those omniscient 13. They watched that game, and they were convinced that, no, you know what, guys? We had it wrong the entire time. Georgia's not the best team in the country. Georgia's not even the second best team in the country. Hell, they're not even the third best team in the country. They're not even the fourth. They're not even the fifth best team in the country. Yeah, they're the sixth best team in the country. That was enough to convince them of that? That is unconscionable. It defies logic. And we all know that Florida State getting left out, that's what created all the controversy, all the uproar, right? Because, I mean, they were an undefeated Power 5 champion. The first undefeated Power 5 champion in the history of the college football playoff to be left out. And I do want to give the committee credit here. I will give them credit where credit is due. They had the balls to put Bama in over Florida State, which I've told you for the past month. I think that was the correct call because I believe that Alabama is better than Florida State. If if the Coswell Playoff Committee's stated directive, which it is, is to select the four best teams for the Coswell Playoff, I have no issue with Alabama getting selected over Florida State because they are a better football team. Now, I know you say, well, that's your opinion, man. And like, how do you prove that? Well, how do you prove Florida State's better? Just because Florida State ran through an inferior schedule undefeated means that they are better than Alabama? Like, how does that prove they're better? But the committee did have the balls to make that controversial decision, which they knew was going to be controversial. They knew that was going to create an uproar to put Bama in over Florida State. And again, I believe that was the right move because I actually adhere to the principle of the quote-unquote four best teams. I mean, sue me, guys. I actually believe you when you say our job is to get the four best teams. I know. How dare I, right? So I'll give the committee props for that decision. But here's where they lose me. They had the balls to do that, but they don't have the cojones to step up and say, you know what? Georgia's still better than Texas. Georgia's still better than Washington just like we clearly thought they were 24 hours ago. They didn't have the guts to do it because they didn't have the obvious cop-out of the injured quarterback to lean on like they did with Florida State and Jordan Travis. But you and I already knew that. Like, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I mean, we already knew that. So, yeah, it's just bittersweet for me to see the rest of the nation finally wake up and admit it out loud four weeks too late. But what you saw yesterday, that dismantling of Florida State was a function of a couple of things as far as I see it. Number one, yes, clearly it was a function of talent because that is what happens when Georgia plays its A game. When I tell you guys on this podcast week after week, I know I sound like a broken record, but like it's just how I see it. I tell you week after week when making predictions on each of our games that it depends on what version of Georgia shows up. And that game yesterday is a case study of what I'm talking about when I say that. Because when we are the best version of ourselves, there is not one single team in the United States of America that can beat us. And honestly, there's only about two maybe that can even stay on the field with us. And what did we get yesterday? We got the best version of Georgia. That's what we got. Unfortunately, we did not get the best version of Georgia in the SEC Championship game. And again, that's on us. But does that one game that we still only lost by three despite playing well below our standard when we've run through the rest of our schedule just destroying teams by the widest margin of any team in the country? That's enough to tell you that not only are we not the number one team, not the number two, not the number three, the number four, the number, four, number five, but the number six team in the country? It's crazy. It's crazy, man. But yeah, number one, that was 
a function of talent. And us just being clearly a more talented football team than Florida State. And yes, I know, guys, they had a lot of players out. You know what? We weren't at full strength either. We had at least five starters out. We had 20 guys in the transfer pool that weren't playing this game. Did Florida State have more impact players out? Yes, they did. I'm not going to deny that. They clearly did. But let's not act like we were at full strength. I mean, no Mary Smims, no Brock Bowers, best player in the country, in my opinion. No Smile Munden, no Pop Dumas Johnson, no Ra Ra Thomas. But even if Florida State was at full strength, and let's say both teams are at full strength, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we're the better team. If, if, if both teams are at full strength and we played our A game, we played the way that we played yesterday, we would have won that game, what, you know, 45 13 instead of 63 to 3. Because, I mean, guys, if you look at it statistically, there's their statistical profile, Florida State's essentially the equivalent of Ole Miss. So we beat Ole Miss, what, 52-17 at home? This is the neutral site. Yeah, 45-13-ish. That sounds about right. So, yeah, largely it was a function of talent. But that doesn't explain everything that we saw yesterday. I think number two, this was a function of superior culture. It really was, guys. Hey, Florida State fans, Florida State apologists, I hear all of you out there following Danny Cannell's lead, whining and making excuses like you did in the entire lead up to this game where you were already laying the groundwork for what was about to happen. You knew, just like I knew, just like all of our, all the Georgia fans out there knew what was going to happen. But that's on you. For a month, you publicly and privately played the victim. Again, you weren't the victim here. If anybody was victimized by the college playoff committee, we were. But you know what we did? We put our big boy britches on and we went out and took care of what we could take care of. We controlled what we could control. That's what big boys do. That's what real elite programs do. That's what championship programs do. That's what winners do. And you, Florida State, are none of those things right now. You want to know why we're Georgia and why you're Florida State? That's why. And look, I'll give Bama credit. Let's go back to last year. Absolutely, Bama, we know, is an elite program. That's a big boy program. It's a championship program. That's a winning program. Well, you know, they were disappointed after last year. Just like we were, just like Florida State was this year when they got left out of the college playoff. They lost two games, two very close games last second. They felt like they were one of the four best teams. You know what? They probably were one of the four best teams last year. But they got left out. But you know what they did? They didn't whine about it. They didn't cry about it. They didn't publicly play the victim. They did exactly what we did yesterday. They put their big boy britches on, and they went out, and they played, and they controlled what they could control. They did what elite programs do, what championship programs do, just like we did yesterday. But all Florida State did was prove that they are none of those things. Georgia just simply has a superior culture. There's no debating that. That is just reality. That is a situation. Toughness, composure, resiliency, connection. The four pillars of this Georgia football program. Now, every program out there wants to project that they have this great culture, man. We're we're all in, quote-unquote, family. How many times you hear that, right? They all have their slogans. But about 90% of them are full of it. They talk the talk, but when it comes down to it, they don't walk the walk. That's not the case with Georgia guys. Yeah, we talk the talk. We'll tell you toughness, composure, resiliency, connection. Kirby Smart says that over and over and over again. It's all throughout the butt smear facility. We talk the talk, but we also walk the walk. It isn't lip service in Athens. It isn't just something that our coaches say and goes in one ear, out the other of our players and kind of nod along and say, okay, yeah, coach, whatever, shut up, I'm get out of here. No, no. The players buy in. They believe it. And if you don't, you're not going to be a part of this program for long. 
Maybe Florida State will get there one day. Maybe. And look, it's still early in the Mike Norvell tenure. Maybe he'll build to that. But they're not there yet. And that was clear yesterday. And not just yesterday. That was on full display the entire past month. And look, I know they're hurting. Look, I've been there, man. We've all been there. We've been left out when we've been the, one of the four best teams in the country. It's not the first time it's happened to us. Maybe that's part of this, that, you know, we've had that experience. Go back to 2018, we had some guys opt out and Kirby had them around the program. And what happened to the Sugar Bowl, we lose to Texas in a game that we should never have lost. And we learned from that. Again, we've had more time to build this culture up. And it's fully built out now. And Florida State, Mike Norvell, again, maybe they'll get there. But it's not there yet. Clearly, it's not there yet. Hurt or not, you got to man up. Playing the victim does you no good. But back to our culture, I've said it many times on this podcast. I'll say it again. I truly believe the greatest differentiator in our program, the success that we've had in this run, is our culture. And that's why I have no doubt that this is but a minor bump in the road. Yes, we have the talent. Number one recruiting class coming. We all know that you have to have the requisite talent. But there are a lot of really talented teams in the country. Florida State is a really talented football team. But what separates Georgia and Florida State? Well, we have more talent, yes. But beyond that, it's the culture. It's toughness, composure, resiliency, and connection. Think about those four pillars, guys. Each of those, all four of them, were on display this past month for our program while Florida State was falling apart internally. We were hurt. We got knocked down. But we showed toughness. We got back up, dusted ourselves off, and got back to work. Composure. We did not let that make us spiral out of control and lose it. Of course, we were disappointed, but we controlled what we could control, and we did what we could about it. Resiliency, bouncing back from that ridiculous snub by the cultural playoff committee. We saw what Florida State did. They had no resiliency. They fell apart. No, not our program. And then connection. These guys play for each other. You heard Kirby Smart talk about it. Man, he got emotional about it. And I get emotional just thinking about it, talking about it here. Those guys, Kamari Lasser, Javon Bullard, Lad McConkey had absolutely no reason to play, right? Because everyone tells you it's a meaningless game, which we'll get to here in just a minute. But they did it for their teammates, for their coaches, for their university, for you, for me. Because again, it's not lip service. We don't just talk it. Our guys live it. Florida State's players clearly do not live whatever they're preaching. They can talk it. They can preach it. They're not living it out. We saw that. But again, we had all these guys come back and play in this one final game. This game that everyone was saying is meaningless, this meaningless game. And I'll be honest with you guys, I can't stand that. And look, some of you may have felt that way about this game. It was a meaningless game. And this is not a shot at you. It's not whatsoever. I, I understand the thought process. I get where it's coming from. I just don't agree with the notion that these bowl games are meaningless. Like, yes, they're meaningless in terms of determining who wins the national championship. Yes, in that context, sure, it's a meaningless game in in the context of the national championship picture. But if this game is entirely meaningless, then I would argue so are about 85% of all the games that are played in the college football season. Because the vast majority of the games have zero playoff implications. When Ole Miss Mississippi State played in the Egg Bowl on Thanksgiving night, did that have any playoff implications? No, of course not. Was it a meaningless game? Would anyone have argued watching that game on Thursday night of, of Thanksgiving Day that that was a meaningless game? It had no meaning whatsoever? No, they would not have said that. So if you're going to use the logic and say, okay, well, this Orange Bowl is a meaningless game, then by extension, using the same logic, so is the Egg Bowl. Again, I'd argue 85%-ish of all games that are played during the college football season would be meaningless if that's the logic we're applying to every game that's played. I, I kept hearing people say, well, you know, just playing for pride in this game. Well, guys, quote unquote, playing for pride 
is all about 95% of the teams in the country ever do. I mean, guys, is Mississippi State ever going to win national championship? No, of course not. They understand that their fan base gets that, but they still care. They still show up for the games. They still watch the games. It's still important to them. They still live it. They still breathe it because pride matters. It's not meaningless. And Florida State clearly looked at this game as though it was meaningless. But our players did not. No matter what the outside voices were saying, this game mattered to them. It had meaning. 50 wins for our senior class, the most in Georgia history. All the momentum this gives our program heading into this offseason. The national impression that it continues to build of what the Georgia football program is, how that affects recruiting, how it affects potentially future college playoff bids. Because let's not think for a minute that a team like Alabama doesn't get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to college playoff consideration because they are Bama. Games like this help us maybe begin to get the benefit of that kind of doubt in the future. So, I just completely reject the notion that this game was meaningless. Yeah, it didn't have meaning towards the college football playoff national champion this year, but that doesn't mean the game didn't have meaning. That's clearly how the entire Florida State team, entire Florida State fan base, entire Florida State administration, coach staff, everyone approached it. So when you combine that with the talent gap between the two teams, you get 63-3. All right, guys, we are just scratching the surface of this uh, Orange Bowl breakdown. We're going to get to all the, the X's and O's, the players, and, and what went down in the actual game itself right after the break. But first, I do want to remind you again about our friends at my bookie. Yeah, guys, I know. I mean, it depends on when you listen to this episode. You might only have one college ball game left to bet on this season, which would be the college ball playoff national championship. But hey, that's still a big game to bet on. And you want to take advantage of our exclusive promo deal while you still can. Again, we're trying to get this extended through the rest of college basketball season. We're working on that. Hopefully we'll know here in the coming days whether whether or not that's going to happen. But for now, all we know is it goes through the end of the college football season. So if you've been on the fence, now's the time to jump off that fence and sign up for a brand new account at MyBookie. It's so simple, guys. Go to MyBookie.ag, use our code, UGA, and you'll get a 50% bonus on that first deposit. That's extra cash you guys can play with and win some money with. So sign up today at mybookie.ag so you can bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with mybookie. All right, guys, let's get to actually breaking down the events of the game itself, what actually went on between the white lines. And we're going to break this down between offense and defense. I want to start with the offense, and here's really what I'm going to do, guys. I have my notes going back, and yes, I actually take notes while I'm watching the game, things I want to make sure I, I talk about on the, on the podcast, but going back, and I'm, I'm one and a half rewatches through now, and so I've got even more notes I've added to this. So I'm just literally going to go through my notes here. We'll start with the offense, and then we'll flip things over to the defense. But let's start it off at the top with the most important position on the field, which we all know is the quarterback position. Let's start with Carson Beck here. Carson Beck, man, was in command, as always, from the get-go. This guy is just the model of consistency back there. He's been in command since day one. He's only grown more and more comfortable throughout the year, and we saw that yesterday. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that he was perfect, but we are now at a point where I think we can say that we are holding Carson Beck to a ridiculous standard, to an impossible standard. Because I I had people telling me during the game that, man, he's missing on some throws today. He doesn't look good today. And then I'm like, wait, what? I mean, yeah, he, he had a couple incomplete passes, maybe one or two that, that were off target. But at the end of the day, the guy, was, the guy goes 13 of 18, 203 yards, two touchdowns, zero picks, 92.3 QBR. And in the process, 
threw what I believe are two of the best passes that I've seen him throw all year with those completions down the field to Dylan Bell. And again, those were vertical routes. And what has been one of the big criticisms of Carson Beck this year, and one of the things that we've even said about Carson Beck this year is we want to see him push the ball down the field vertically more consistently and more accurately. Well, we saw him do that to Dylan Bell on two different occasions. And guys, you truly could not have dropped that ball into Dylan Bell's hands more perfectly than what Carson Beck did laying that ball out there for him to make those catches. So yeah, there were one or two throws at the top of my head where it's like, okay, well, that there was one that probably should have been picked. It was a low throw. That was an inaccurate throw. That's on him. And then there was one on a third down that stands out to me. Uh, it was a third down that it was an incomplete pass, so we didn't convert the third down. He was trying to throw it to Dylan Bell in a comeback on the, on the boundary, and it looked like he threw the ball further outside than where Bell was. And I can probably say there's a little bit of miscommunication there. He expected Dylan to be a little bit further out towards the sideline on that comeback. But if you want to call that an, an inaccurate throw, that's fine. I'll allow it. But again, guys, 13 of 18. Are we now at the point where if Carson Beck doesn't go 18 for 18 that we're going to say he had a bad game? I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. I think we're, we are getting to that point. We'll see how it, how it plays out next year. But what I saw was quarterback that, yeah, might have missed a throw or two here or there. I'm not going to say he didn't. But I saw a guy that, once again, had complete control of the offense, understood exactly what the Florida State defense was trying to do to him, the coverage they were throwing at him, had answers for everything they were trying to do, was not confused, was not startled, and led our team to 42 points in one half of football. And I am so excited to have this guy back for another year. I think this guy, you guys have heard me say it all year, I think he's going to have a chance to contend to be the number one overall draft pick. Certainly a, a top 10 caliber draft pick and maybe even a Heisman Trophy candidate. I believe when I see it, for a Georgia quarterback with how we like to run the football. But with the name recognition coming back, if he puts up some big numbers and we win some of those big games, think about the big stages he's going to have, guys. Like, yeah, we have a tough schedule at Alabama, at Texas, at Ole Miss. Yeah, that's tough. But also, the flip side of that is the stages you get to play on. And if Carson plays big in those games and we win two of those games at least, or hell, maybe even all three of them, we're talking about a Heisman Trophy contender. So all in all, I thought Carson Beck played very well once again. But then in relief of Carson, to open the second half, we got really our first extended look at Gunnar Stockton, not just this year, but really in his entire career. And I've been waiting for this, guys. I mean, I love Brock Vandegrift. I wish him the best as long as he's not playing Georgia. And I, I appreciate everything the guy did for us. I love watching him play. But I also have been excited to get a chance to see Gunnar out there with some extended snaps. And we got to see that yesterday. And I, I will admit... It's just natural. That's not a criticism of him. It's just an observation. He was a little antsy at first, a little eager to pull it down and run when he first got out there. But again, that's that's natural. A guy that hasn't really played really many snaps at all, let alone in this kind of setting against that kind of team. Yeah, it, it makes sense that he's going to have some nerves out there at first. But I, I have to give the guy credit. He settled in and started to make some really nice throws. And we know the athleticism he has. And he also, if you guys go back to when you watched him in high school, if you watched him play at Raven County, he was always a great athlete, but he also would run with power, physicality. You saw some of that on Saturday. Now, he wasn't running over guys on Florida State Stevens the way he did in high school because it's a different caliber athlete, obviously. But, hey, he's a guy that's got good athleticism, can run with a little bit of power, he's a tough runner, all those things. And I saw that. You love to see that. But I thought he made some really nice throws as well. I and mean, the slot fade to Anthony Evans for that final touchdown was an absolutely gorgeous throw. I mean, that was a, a dime, man. But on top of that, again, tough, physical, mobile guy. Gives a little bit something different than we have with Carson Beck. And I will say, I think I saw enough out of him. And I, I know this is maybe going a little too far because it's a very small sample size. But I think, you know, almost a, a half a football or so, I mean, what, a quarter to half a football, 
I saw enough out of Gunner to give me reason to believe that this guy's going to have his time as Georgia's starting quarterback if he just stays patient. Now, I know that's easier said than done, waiting the way that Carson Beck did. It's very rare. But, you know, we know Carson's going to be gone for this year. And, I mean, there's no guarantee. You know, he's going to have to fight off Ryan Pugliese, whoever we bring in this 2025 recruiting class, and maybe we'll take a, a transfer guy after next year. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. But I've seen enough from Gunner. I saw enough from Gunner yesterday to lead me to believe that he is going to have a very real chance to become our starting quarterback going into 2025. And as he continues to grow and get more reps in actual games the way that Carson did in the 2022 season, it's only up from here for Gunner. It really is. All right, moving on here. Let's go to the running backs. Let's go Kendall Milton, man. What a finish to this guy's career. Four 100-yard rushing efforts in his career total. So in his entire career, four years here at Georgia, four 100-yard rushing efforts. Three of those came between 11-11 and 12-30 of this season, November 11th and December 30th. Over his last five games of the year, Kendall averaged 99 yards rushing, 8.46 yards a carry, and put up nine touchdowns. Now, I hope that Kendall comes back for another year, but I'm not anticipating that happening. I think he's going to go ahead and take his talents to the NFL. You know, running backs, the clock's always ticking, short shelf life, the NFL. I would love to have Kendall come back, especially the way he ended this year and the leadership he brings to this team, but I imagine he's going to go on. So I, that's why I say what a finish to the, his career. But man, the last half of this season, the way he started to run with power, with balance, the vision that he displayed was unbelievable, man. Like this guy was the player we always hoped he would become this these last five games, maybe in the last half or so of the season, once he finally got healthy, because we know this guy was very rarely fully healthy in his career. But the last six, seven games or so of this season, that's what we got from Kendall Milton. We saw healthy Kendall, and he put up those numbers. And guys, I mean, he's just been running like a man possessed. And I truly could not be happier for the guy because this is an unbelievable young man. Our coaching staff, the players love this guy. He does things the right way. He has overcome so much adversity throughout his career and never wavered. Always come back from it. And guys, I, don't, I mean, all the things that he's had to deal with from an injury standpoint, I don't know if I would have the fortitude to be able to come back from it time and time and time and time again, especially with the outside noise. I don't know, man. But this guy didn't let it get to him. And maybe he did, but he never showed it. He kept working, right? Toughness, composure, resiliency, connection. Kendall Milton really embodies all four of those pillars. And the leadership this guy brought to this team, not just this year, but for a couple of years, it's just invaluable, man. I mean, let's not forget after the SEC Championship game, he was the very first player to come up publicly and say that he was playing in the Orange Bowl. He was the first one on the team to do that. He's the one that started the trend. So this guy was just not only a hell of a player for us this year, but what a locker room presence and just the definition of a damn good dog. He is a DGD. That is what Kendall Milton is. And speaking of damn good dogs, Dejan Edwards, man. I can say all the same things I just said about Kendall Milton. I can really say the same things about Dejan Edwards. I, I, I don't know if I can say enough about this guy, to be honest with you. I mean, I think he's going to be moving on as well. I guess he could come back for his COVID year. I don't think that he will. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't count on that happening right now. But let's go back. I want to take you guys back to what happened when Dejon Edwards first committed. If you remember, that was the recruiting class where we got the commitment 
from the infamous Zach Evans, right? The nation's number one running back who had all those red flags. Well, we kind of ignore those red flags. And we learned from that. It's one of those learning experiences for Kirby Smart. And we took him. But then things kind of blew up and we're like, nah, man, we got to, we got to cut you loose. Can't keep you here. And so we needed a running back. Unfortunately, at that time, we kind of already shunned Tank Bigsby and said, no, we're we're good. We're taking Kendall Milton and we're taking Zach Evans. And so Bigsby wanted to come to Georgia, but he goes to Auburn, right? Same thing with Jameer Gibbs. Jameer Gibbs wanted to come to Georgia. And we said, ah, man, we like you, but we got these other guys. They're ahead of you on our, on our, on our board. So what's he do? He goes to Georgia Tech, later goes to Alabama. So at that point, we can come back and say, hey, Tank, remember us? And he's like, nah, man, like too late. Same thing with Jameer Gibbs. Nah, man, too late. Feelings are hurt, right? Well, who do we turn to? We turn to Dajan Edwards. And this kid didn't have the ego to sit there and say, oh, nah, man, too late. He didn't get all up in his feelings when he was down on our board. When we came back to him and said, look, man, here's the situation. Zach Evans is gone. We want you. He jumped at the offer. And you know what? He didn't have immediate success. This guy was bare the depth chart for a couple of years. How many players in this day and age, we give all the, the props guys like Carson Beck for sticking around, but how many guys stick around? Not many, especially the running back position, right? He easily could transfer. And I would say 90 plus percent of the running backs in the same situation probably would have transferred. Not Dejon. The dude put his head down. He went to work, never talked, never complained, never made it about him. When you talk about the culture of the Georgia program, like I just did earlier in this episode, it's players like Dejon Edwards that build that culture and sustain that culture year after year. Never the most physically gifted kid, never. I mean, I think underrated in terms of his ability to run the football, incredibly shifty, great vision, deceptively powerful for a guy his size, but we all know there were some physical limitations there compared to other running backs we've seen in Georgia history. But this guy was always just so productive, man. I mean, going back to last year, what do we say? You know, when he was first time working himself into the rotation, all the man does is produce. Whenever he was given a chance, whether it was in a backup role, reserve role, garbage time role, or a leading role, a starting role, all the dude did was produce. And he did it the right way. In an era where talking trash and drawing attention to yourself after even making the most modest of plays has become normalized, Dejan Edwards is a throwback, man. And I'm an old dude now, so I appreciate these throwback players as they are few and far between these days. And I'm going to miss them, man. I'm going to miss Kendall. I'm going to miss Dejan. These guys were so much fun to watch when they were out there on the field in the red and black. But we're not done with the running backs here. We got to talk about freshman Roderick Robinson. Big Rod here. Now, this is the first time that we've seen Rod in any sort of extended role since, what, like week three back in South Carolina? Even week three, he didn't really play that much. He was out with a high angle sprain for most of the rest of the year, came back and played. I think he got two carries, I want to say, against Ole Miss. But that's it. That's it, guys. So we haven't seen this guy really in a minute. And I saw exactly what I wanted to see from Rod all season long. He's always been a big dude. I mean, I think I told you guys back in the offseason, I saw Roderick Robinson in the summer at the Blind Pig downtown here in Athens. And at first I was like, what? That dude's playing running back? I mean, guys, I mean, just a, a pretty rotund dude, let's say that. I mean, there, there, was, there was some bad weight. Let's just put that out there. But he's got his body in shape. And he's, I mean, again, he's always been a big guy. But my, my thing with him early in the year was, yeah, he's big, but he doesn't really run big. That changed yesterday. That dude was running through tackles, man. People trying to arm tackle him, uh-uh. Not yesterday. Early in the year, yeah, he would have gone down. No, the yesterday, he was running like a man possessed, like Kendall Milton, man. Like He clearly got the message. I'm a big back, and what do big backs do? They run big. And if you, I mean, the size this guy is, it's not like he's the most 
fleet of foot guys, quick-ish, but he's not like, you know, straight line fast. So what he brings to the team is power. And if he doesn't run big, then like, what do you bring to the team? I think he got that message because he was running in a different way that I saw him run early in the season. And, and look, he's a young guy. Like, you grow, you develop. And clearly through this season, behind the scenes, when he wasn't in playing time, Roger Robinson was growing and developing. We saw a different version of him yesterday. And I was very excited to see that. Now we're gonna have a loaded backfield next year. And I don't know exactly where Roger Robinson is going to fit in, but he does give us a different body type than what we really have on the roster. Even the guys coming in with the Bowens and, and the Frasers and obviously the Dwight Phillips, so if he can continue to run with that type of physicality at that size, I have to believe there's going to be a role for him in that backfield. Maybe not a leading role, maybe even not a secondary role, but a role of some sort in that backfield. And maybe if he bides his time, like a guy like Dejon Edwards did, and he kind of learns that lesson from Dejon, maybe he will eventually be a feature back kind of guy for us if he stays patient and continues to grow and develop. But again, I was very excited with what I saw from Big Rod yesterday. And if we're going to talk about the run game, we have to talk about the offensive line, guys. And I'm not going to single anybody out here, really. I just want to talk about them as a group. They were flat-out dominant. That was bully ball, y'all. 372 yards rushing, and there were multiple plays. In fact, I would say the majority of the running plays that were called were plays in which the running back wasn't touched until he was five-plus yards down the field. On the zone plays, we were getting consistent movement. I know they had some guys that weren't playing. I understand their defensive line was, I don't know, gutted. I don't know if it was quite gutted. They still had a couple guys in their in their uh, defensive front six that were still playing. And Kalen Deloach, you had him playing there in the middle of that defense. So they had some guys, but it didn't matter. We were moving them with consistency in the zone game. The pin and pull game, we were sealing, we were kicking them out. That was the most dominant effort I have seen from the Georgia offensive line probably in two or three years. And again, yes, I know you were, people want to say, oh, well, yeah, well, Florida State wasn't at full strength. Guys, we didn't do that against UT Martin and Ball State and UAB earlier in the year. We didn't. We, we documented that very much so on this show. So I don't care. I don't want to hear that. We flat out dominated that team. All those guys had scholarships, right? They had Power 5 scholarships to Florida State, a program that wants to believe it's one of the big boys. And they just got absolutely worked by our offensive line. And not even this, just the starter guys. Obviously, the starters, yes. But again, after the first or the second half, I mean, we were basically all backups. I mean, you got Jared Wilson there at center. You got Michael Morris kicking out the left tackle. You got Chad, Le- Chad Lindbergh in there at right guard. Monroe Freeling at right tackle. And we were still doing the exact same thing to that Florida State front that the starters were doing. So just an absolutely dominant performance by that Georgia offensive line. All right, let's go to the receivers here for a few minutes, guys. Dylan Bell. We've seen this guy come on the past couple weeks. Now that he's back to being a full-time wide receiver, I truly believe that he has number one wide receiver potential. I think he's probably a Z next year, and I don't know that he will be our number one guy next year. What I would say is I think that we're going to have at least four players on the team next year at receiver that will have legit number one wideout ability. And Dylan is one of those. We know that Dominic Lovett can be that guy because he was that guy from Missouri. That's in the SEC. We know that Robert Thomas can be that guy because he was that guy from Mississippi State, another SEC team. I believe that Colby Young coming in from Miami has that potential at the X spot. And I, I also, again, believe Dylan Bell can be that guy. He, it's, he's a really interesting player. I mean, he has a running back body. We know that. That's why he was playing running back for us at times this year. And he's got the versatility that really no other wide receiver in the team really has but he's not the biggest guy, not the tallest, longest guy, but he's got great hands. He, and he just has this knack 
for making plays. Great body control, a knack for making the contested catch. And I'm not talking about just the 50-50 ball, but when the ball is actually contested, and the defenders there able to make a play on the ball and you still have a way to come down with it, that's almost an uncanny ability. In a lot of ways, like you can you can help players develop that to a degree, but in some ways you just you kind of have that. And Dylan has that. So I am extraordinarily excited to see what Dylan's going to be able to do for us next year with a full another full year in the offseason program. Just playing receiver because hopefully our running back depth issues will be a thing of the past with all the guys that we brought in. I mean, God, it was a freaking mash unit this year. So for him to be able to focus on receiver and do that for an entire offseason on top of what he was able to do this year, I man, I cannot wait to see what this guy is going to be able to do for us next year. And then Lad McConkey, man, glad. I'm Look, I know he hasn't officially announced, guys. I, I still lean towards him declaring for the NFL. And that's the word I'm still getting right now. It's not a done deal. He hasn't made a final decision, but that's where he's leaning right now. So let's just go ahead and assume that he does indeed declare for the NFL draft. And I just want to say I'm so glad that I got to see him play one more time. I know he wasn't out there all that much. He had one run for one touchdown run, which kind of was just a broken play, but and also had, what, one catch. So it wasn't like he did all that much out there. But man, just getting to see him out there one more time when we, when we didn't get to see him that much this year. I mean, he, half the games he missed, man. I mean, he did. He just missed half the games this year. And that double pass attempt ended up being a touchdown run for Lad. That was vintage Lad McConkey. Just going out there, almost playing like backyard football, ball in his hands, in space, making people miss, outrunning people, having no business. Dude, when you look at the guy just standing out there on the field, you think there's no way this guy should be able to do these things, but yet he always does. I was thrilled watching that yesterday in in the game, and then going back and rewatching it today. I just had I just could not wipe a smile off my face. I went back and rewatched it like fifteen times that that touchdown run. It's just like yeah, probably the last one we'll see from Lad McConkey in Georgia uniform, and just the, it was vintage Lad, man. That that run was vintage Lad. So I just could not wipe the grin off my face, man. Just loved watching that kid for his entire time here at Georgia, and uh, we we're absolutely. I'm gonna miss him. We're gonna miss him. You're gonna miss him. Guys like that don't come through this, the program very often. And uh, I mean, obviously, Brock Bowers. We'll get to him later this week. But Lad's, uh, Lad's a baller, man. And uh, I'm going to miss that kid. But as great as Lad was, we're going to be okay next year. Because not only do we have guys like Dylan Bell, also have guys like Dominic Lovett coming back, man. I'm telling you, Dominic Lovett is going to be a terror for opposing defenses in the middle of the field for us next year. Brock Bowers was the guy that was controlling the middle of the field for us the past three years. And Love is obviously different from Brock, but he is going to be, in my opinion, the guy that will shoulder that load next year. And you saw that on full display yesterday. He is going to be that middle of the field threat for us. And I still want to see us throw more slot fades to him because I think he can just destroy teams on that route. I mean, that's what he ran to perfection at, at Missouri. But getting him the ball in space in the middle of the field and just letting him go to work is a scary thought for opposing defenses. And we didn't do it. We did some of that this year. I'm not going to say that we didn't do some of it this year, but we did not do near as much of it as we otherwise would have if we did not have Brock Bowers. And you have a guy like Brock Bowers, the unicorn that is Brock Bowers, you have to feed the beast. you got to give the man the football because he's freaking Brock Bowers, the greatest player in college football, the greatest tight end in college football history. So yeah, you got to feed him. And he operates as a tight end largely in the middle of the field, although he can do different things, obviously a very virtual athlete for us. But as a tight end, middle field was largely his domain. Well, without Brock, I mean, we'll get to Oscar here in a minute. Oscar's going to do great things for us too, but... Love it, in my opinion, is going to become that middle of the field threat for us and do it in a very different way than Brock. But again, I think he's going to shoulder that load. And I think we have a very big year incoming for Dominic Lovett next year. And Oscar Dub, as I just mentioned here, obviously not Brock Bowers. And we, we have to understand this, guys. There is not going to be another Brock Bowers. 
He is a unicorn in the truest sense of the word. I don't know if there's ever been a Brock Bowers at tight end. I mean, there's been great tight ends in college football and in the NFL, but but like Brock Bowers, exactly like that? I don't know, man. I don't know. So he's not going to be Brock. We can't expect him to be Brock. We can't expect Lawson Lucky to be Brock. We can't expect Jaden Riddell to be Brock. Nobody's going to be Brock. But Brock or not, Oscar Delp can freaking play, man. And I know he had his struggles early on in this season as a blocker. And we documented that very much so on this show. We talked about it a lot. But he improved so much as the year progressed. And I thought he did a hell of a job yesterday blocking on the perimeter, being able to seal the edges. Did some really good things for us, man, in that regard. And all he's done, like I've said it all year, he's not Brock, but he's more like Brock in his skill set than he is Darnell Washington. But we were asking him to be Darnell Washington, which is not really what he's built to do. But you know what the man did? The dude just simply said, all right, coach, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it for the team. And he went to work and he made himself a better blocker, even though that's not really what he's built to do. It's what the team needed him to do. So there's culture again. It's what the team needed him to do. So that's what the kid did. But next year, he's going to be freed up more to do what he is really built to do, what really fits his skill set, which is be more of a threat in the pass game. Obviously, he's still going to be a blocker. He's a tight end, but Lawson Lucky will shoulder more of that load next year. And you will see Oscar Delp become more of a threat in the pass game. And we know the guy has great athleticism. I mean, he was a dynamic pass catcher in high school. And we're going to see more of that next year. Again, not to Brock's level, okay? Don't expect that. Don't put those expectations on him. But that doesn't mean that Oscar is not going to be one hell of a player for us next year. And I fully expect that. All right, one more guy here on my offensive notes. Let's go Anthony Evans. So we got a little bit of a taste of this guy, a sneak peek of this guy. We're turning a punt in the SEC Championship game that put us in scoring position, allowed us to cut the game within three and almost pull off that comeback win. Not quite, but almost. But Anthony Evans, I believe, is going to be a big part of what we do next year. He is the clear number two slot guy behind Dominic Love, and I think he's going to get plenty of playing time. He is explosive and electric. Man, I think Honestly, probably the most explosive receiver on our roster next year. Now, we'll see what happens with Arian Smith. He might or might not come back. That hasn't been decided yet. We'll see. Anthony Evans is not as fast as Arian Smith is, but also he ain't that far off. In college, Arian ran a 10, 10, 100 meter when he was working with our track team. In high school, Anthony Evans ran a 10 to 700 meter. So this guy can absolutely fly. And he's got some wiggle to his game as well. And you guys saw, we threw two slot fades to him. I'm telling you right now, I think Dominic Lovett is a, is a major threat with the slot fade. And that's one of the things I will slightly criticize Mike Bobo for. I think that was an unused weapon in our offense this year. But again, you have Brock Bowers, so you do things a little bit differently. Without Brock next year, I think you're going to see more slot fades because I think Dominic Lovett is a weapon in that regard. And, and Andy Evans, in my opinion, is even more of a weapon because he's more explosive than Dominic Lovett is. So I cannot wait to see this guy in an expanded role for us. I mean, I know we're losing Makai Muse and he was a really good returner for us this year. I don't think we're gonna lose that much, guys. In fact, I mean, there's a world where Anthony Evans is going to be better because he's a better athlete than Makai Muse. Does he have the vision as a punt returner? That remains to be seen, but in terms of explosiveness and the electric ability out there on the field, Anthony Evans is a superior athlete. I'm excited, man. I'm really excited to see what this guy can do with another full offseason under his belt. And getting some experience in this game, the Orange Bowl, I'm really excited to see what he can do to help us get back to the National Championship in 2024. All right, guys, that's the offense. Those are my notes on the offensive side of the ball. We'll be back with my defensive notes here in just a minute. But real quick, I do want to remind you about our friends at Alumni Hall. There is no better way to ring in the new year than by picking up 
some of the newest, latest Georgia gear at Alumni Hall. They got all your favorite brands. They got the best selection of men's clothing, women's clothing, children's clothing. They just had some brand new Nike gear hit the shelves. And you guys, trust me, you want to jump on that fast because that stuff flies off the shelves. I'm telling you right now, it's out there. There's a couple new hoodies, a couple t-shirts, a jacket or two. So you want to make sure to jump on that while you can, while those things are still in stock. But whatever you're looking for, guys, if it comes to George Gear and Accessories, Alumni Hall is hands down your go-to option because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldog shop. All right, guys, let's flip things over to the defensive side of the ball here. Got a couple of notes for you on the defense. Let's start with Jalen Walker. Let me just simply say this right now. Jalen Walker has to be on the field more next year. If he is not, I will lose my mind. I'm telling you that right now. So just understand, if he's not on the field more next year, I will lose my mind. You can get mad at me if you want, but I'm telling you right now, it's going to happen. I crunch the numbers, guys. He played 27% of our defensive snaps this year. 27%. In my humble opinion, I know we have a lot of talented players, guys. I know we do. But that is not nearly enough for our biggest defensive playmaker and by far the most disruptive force in our defense. 27%. He's on the field for one one out of every four defensive snaps. That's not enough. That number has to get above 50% next year. Now, how do we do that? I don't know. I'm not the one that has to answer that question. I'm not the one that gets paid millions of dollars to to figure these things out. I can give you my ideas. I still believe Jalen Walker has the body of an inside linebacker. I think he needs to be on the field more as an inside linebacker. I think he should be in our four-man inside linebacker rotation. And on third downs, you slide him basically to play jack like we did all all year long in those third-down packages and our dying packages, and you have him rush the passer. But he has to be on the field more. The guy is hands down the best pass-rushing linebacker that we have ever had under Kirby Smart. Bar none. Quay was great. Nicobe was great. Chain Tindall was great. None of them had the natural pass rushing skills that Jalen Walker possesses. The problem has always been, where do you play him, right? Because we have all these inside linebackers. You had Pop Dumas Johnson. You have Smile Munden now. We have CJ Allen. We got Raylan Wilson. We got the number one linebacker, Justin Williams, coming this year. Chris Cole, who I'm extremely high on coming in. It's like, man, we got, we got an embarrassment of riches at inside linebacker. So where did Jalen Walker fit in? Well, you better freaking find a place for this guy to fit in. This guy has to be on the field. We are handcuffing ourselves if we only reserve him for third down packages. And I understand like, well, okay, where do you play him? Inside, outside, outside. He might not be big enough to consistently hold up on the edges, like set in the edge. So how do you get him on the field on standard downs? And you know, he's behind all these other guys, inside linebacker. I don't know. Figure it out. Figure it out. This guy has got to be on the field, in my opinion, at least 50% of the snaps. He is way too dynamic of an athlete, way too much of a difference maker for him to not be. And to be quite honest, guys, of all the guys that played inside linebacker for us yesterday, I thought he looked the best at inside linebacker. Not even just rushing the passer, just playing inside linebacker. I thought he looked better than CJ Allen. I thought he looked better than Raylan Wilson playing inside linebacker yesterday. I'm not saying those guys looked bad. They didn't. I just think Jalen looked really good. And it's like, where, where has this been all year? Why, why has he not been playing inside linebacker more? That guy's a playmaker and he's got to be on the field. Speaking of playmakers, Michael Williams. I am very excited about the move to Jack. I told you guys that was coming a couple weeks ago, that we were moving him to Jack linebacker. It's a big reason why Marvin Jones Jr. decided he wanted to transfer because he saw the rag on the wall. You also have Damon Wilson, who was injured, couldn't play in this game. He'll be a factor at, at Jack as well. Chaz is still going to play Jack on standard downs. He's not going anywhere. But Michael moving to Jack is going to be a godsend for this guy and for this team, in my opinion. And he played some against... Florida State yesterday, he did. Now, he played some five techs, some demons of end stuff too. We moved him around, did some, a couple different things for him. And he's still going to have that versatility next year. I'm not saying he's going to 100% go to Jack full time, but he's going to play some Jack. And that's going to help in so many ways. 
Number one, it's going to help our rush defense and help us set the edge. Because Chaz is a good run defender. He does a good job actually setting the edge. I know people don't want to give him credit for that, but blowing up the pulling guards, pulling linemen, which is what really he's asked to do on standard downs. Like that's what we do, guys. We anchor, we close, which means blow up the pullers, and then we have linebackers scrape over the top to make the play. It's anchor on the interior, close on the edge, scrape over the top. Anchor, close, scrape. That is our mantra on defense, or one of them stopping the run. And Chaz's role is to close. He does a really good job of that. Now, I do think that Chaz, as I've said many times in the show, needs to be more aware of where the ball carrier is when he is closing and not just do it with as much reckless abandon as he does. I think that's one thing that he really does need to improve on. But the guy does what he's asked to do in blowing up those, those pullers. But he's also not that big. Michael is bigger and stronger and just more athletic. So I think it helps in that regard in setting the edge at times in certain situations and certain personnel packages. But I also think it's going to give us more pass rush on standard downs, which is one of the issues. I think Chaz Chambers, again, is a very viable player for us. I know a lot of people in the fan base don't agree with that. I do find it really rather gross how much this guy was roasted on social media by our own fan base just for simply announcing that he's coming back for another year. Like, how dare he announce he wants to come back and help George try to win another national championship? And again, I'm not saying I have never criticized Chaz. I have, and I, I will continue to do so if I feel like it's warranted. But I also recognize that Chaz Chambliss does a lot of good things for Georgia and is a hell of a leader on this team. It's one, by far one of the hardest workers on this team. Ask anyone around the program. Everyone I know says that to a man. And on standard downs, Chaz Chambliss is not really asked to rush the pass. We don't really ask our Jack linebackers to do that all that much. Now, does Chaz have some physical deficiencies? Again, yes, he does. And I do think that moving Michael to Jack on standard downs will allow us to get more pass rush from that position on those standard downs, which has always been one of my issues with our defense and how we structure things. We put such a premium on stopping the run and getting getting teams to third long, which I understand the concept and it's worked so well for us. I mean, back to my national titles, hard to argue with that. But I still think one of the things our defense can continue to improve on is finding ways to actually affect the passer on standard downs. And I think moving Michael to Jack will give us a boost in doing so. But man, he looked good yesterday. I mean, he was he was active, had one sack, forced a fumble on that sack, and actually recovered the fumble on that same sack. So he gave us a little bit of taste of what I think we can expect to see from Michael next year. I said coming this year, I thought it would be a breakout season for Michael. I was wrong. I think it might have been a year early. Part of that was Michael dealt with a lot of injuries in the preseason. I mean, he was dealing with injuries late in uh, the summer through fall camp. And he took him a while to get back to 100%. And missing that time, and he's still a young guy, missed some developmental time there. I think next year, though, is where we're going to see Michael Williams really break out maybe on the national stage. And I think the position change will certainly help him in that regard. All right, let's move things over to the defensive line. Now, look, guys, I know that we destroyed Florida State 63-3. to And so you're like, man, like, how can you possibly be critical of anything that you saw when you beat a team by 60 points? And I get that. It's hard to, to say that, yeah, let's be critical of this team when we outscore them by 60 points. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Florida State just ran the ball all over us. They definitively did not. But early in that game, I would say the first quarter and a half, they had a fair amount of success running the football. More success than I would have liked to have seen. I know that at the end of the day, only had 26 carries for 63 yards. A lot of that was sack numbers at the end of the day, but Ja'Kai Douglas had eight carries for 46 yards. Kazai Holmes had eight for 29. Like nothing to write home about, but that's 16 carries for what? About like 75 yards. And they did some Wildcat stuff. They did some QB run stuff, which I applaud them for doing is if I'm watching Georgia's tape, I say, oh yeah, well, quarterback run has really hurt Georgia this year. Attacking the perimeter has hurt Georgia. And they did some of that early in the game. And again, what we saw was we just simply never at any point this year and also in this game, never really had that dominant 
interior defensive lineman. Our defensive line just wasn't what it has been all year, and it was just kind of driven home again on Saturday against Florida State. Now, again, it didn't really hurt us in this game. We held them three points. They still played well. I'm not saying that we don't have good players in the defensive line. We do. We just don't have those dominant forces that we've had in years past. And if there is one single thing that kept us from winning national title this year, I would say that is it. And I think that is one of the big offseason objectives for us is we have to correct that. We have to fix that. Now, how do you do that becomes a more difficult question. Do you have to go to the transfer portal? We got Xavier McLeod. I'm high on what this guy can be eventually. I don't know if he's going to be that guy next year for us. I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. But I don't know if that's a reasonable expectation right now. There's still some time to go out there and get some other guys for the transfer portal. Maybe some guys that are in the portal right now. That remains to be seen. We've got to watch that. But you also have to look at the guys currently on our roster right now, inside our program, the young guys like Jamal Jarrett and Jordan Hall. I think both those guys have difference-making potential, but neither guy was ready to be a difference-maker this year. Now, Ja Jarrett looked good yesterday. Now, he only got eight snaps. It's not a lot. Very, very small sample size, but it's really more than we saw him play at any other point this year. But eight snaps or not, small sample size or not, more than anything, what I was encouraged by with Ja was his body. His body looked good, guys. The reason he was not a a factor for us at all this year was he wasn't in shape. I mean, let's just call it what it was. He wasn't. He was not physically ready to be that guy. He had to get his body in shape, and he's a freshman. That's not uncommon for guys on the defensive line. I mean, Jordan Davis himself had to deal with that his freshman year, right? So it's not a criticism of jaw. It's just what he had to do. That's just reality. But what I've been hearing behind the scenes, this guy has really come on the last couple months and really starting to understand what it takes to be a difference maker at this level, I still believe he has that potential. It was just a matter of, is he willing to do what it takes to be that guy? And we're starting to see signs that, yes, Ja is willing to do those things. He gets it now. The light's starting to come on. And he has reshaped his body. His body looked really good, guys. And that was the thing that needed to change. First and foremost, before anything else happens with him, he had to change the body. He can be that answer for us at the Zero Tech. Ja can be that guy. We need him to be that guy. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you what I saw yesterday convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will be that guy next year. But what I can tell you is I saw some very encouraging things. And that's exciting for me. And then we have Jordan Hall, who did play more of a role on our defensive line this year than Ja did. Now, we had some injuries early in the year, so Jordan got more time early in the year. Then he kind of faded a little bit and started to pick up some more snaps later in the year on third downs because he's a really good athlete. He saw, some, saw the field some late in the season. And I, I still very much believe in Jordan Hall. I think he can be a difference maker on the defensive line. I, I don't want to hold these guys to standards that are far too high as true freshmen. They were never going to be Jalen Carter. They were going to be Jordan Davis or uh, Devontae Wyatt as true freshmen. They were never going to be. I just wanted to see signs and progress. I think we started to see that with Ja again, but also with Jordan. I I still think he needs to play with more consistency, but he flashes elite playmaking ability. Now, he needs to learn to anchor more consistently. What I mean by anchor is he's got to hold his point of attack on the line of scrimmage. He gets moved far too easily sometimes. It doesn't happen all the time, but he's not a consistent force holding the point of attack right now. That's what needs to change for him. And and there's no reason it cannot change because the dude is powerful. He's just got to play with better technique, lower pad level. He's got to strike the blockers first on a more consistent basis. He just has to fight more and get a little bit stronger. And I saw him do some of those things on Saturday at times, but I also saw some of the old bad habits at times too. Now, he is a guy that gets a lot of athleticism up front, and he almost had a big tackle for loss in the backfield. I want to say it was in the first half. So I saw some good things. I saw some good things from both those guys, Jarrett and Hall. But we need those two 
to take big steps for us next year if we want to get back to winning national titles, especially if we don't find that difference maker in the portal. So if we don't find that difference maker in the portal, it's got to be those two guys because the other guys, like Warren Brinson's going to come back. We're going to get Nas Stackhouse back. Those guys are both awesome, very viable pieces for us. And Nas actually, by the way, let's mention him real quick. He played far more like the Nas from 2022 yesterday than what we saw maybe at any point all year long, especially what we saw from him in the SEC title game. Guys, he was not good in the SEC title game. That was probably the worst I've seen that guy play. He just got like bullied by Alabama. But he came back with maybe his strongest performance of the season against Florida State. But we largely know who he is. We largely know who Warren Brinson is. We know what those guys are. And they're really good, really valuable players for us. But they haven't shown to be difference makers. Ja and Jordan still have that potential. Will they get there next year? I don't know. I don't know. But they have the potential. It's possible. We just need them to get there. All right, let's go to the inside linebackers here. I know I already mentioned Jalen Walker a little bit earlier. Let's go to some of these other guys. C.J. Allen, guys is a really good football player. I'm not going to dispute that. I mean, this guy, for a true freshman, has a really high football IQ. He's a good athlete. He He's a good tackler. He's a strong physical player out there. But he's a freshman, and there are things that he needs to continue to improve on. Getting through traffic is one of the things that hurt him all year long. I thought he did a better job of that against Florida State, but I still think he was a step slow in his reads at times against Florida State. And that was something that hurt him all year. And when I say a step slow, it's like he's reading a little bit too long. Maybe he's not trusting himself enough. And by the time he decides what he wants to do, the offensive linemen are up on him at the second level and they take him out of the play. Now, that doesn't happen every snap, but it happens too much, honestly, for my liking. And it happened too much against Florida State. Again, back in, as I was saying earlier, in the first half, they had some successful run plays. And C.J. Allen, at times was a big part of why they had some successful run plays. Because again, he was hesitating in his reads. He was allowing the blockers to get up on him before he attacked them. He wasn't striking ball carriers until they're three, four yards down the field. He wasn't meeting them at the line of scrimmage. But hey, again, he's a freshman. You have to learn these things. There's, it's very rare a true freshman inside linebacker has enough understanding of the defense, enough confidence to play that fast, to play at the level they need to the, to the way that like Roquan Smith did when he was a junior, the way that Quay Walker and it could be Dean and Chain Tindall did back in 2021. Like those guys weren't doing that as true freshmen. CJ as a true freshman has been fantastic for us, but we still need him to improve. We still need him to get better because there's a lot of room for improvement there. And I fully expect him to improve next year and become a different player for us because I know how hard this guy works. I know the kind of player he is behind the scenes. He's a Georgia culture kind of guy. And so I fully expect that to be the case. But as a true freshman, there are some things he needs to work on. And I, we saw some of that against Florida State yesterday. Now saying that, I also want to give guys some props. I thought he did a really good job in coverage yesterday. And that's one of the things early in the year he was struggling at times, I mean, that's that's usually where inside linebackers that are young, that's where they struggle the most. Because they in high school, like they're just playing a lot of man coverage, they may drop into a zone here and there, but like the quarterbacks aren't that level, right? Well, in the college game, they are, and so that's a big part of what you have to be able to do to stay on the field. And he struggled some with that early in the year. I thought he did a really nice job. I mean, he broke up. I was at a fourth down play. It was either a third down or a fourth down play. We made a fantastic play in the football. So I really liked what I saw there. I just want him to get a little bit more decisive and a little faster with his reads. Raylan Wilson got the start in this game, and man, he is so freaky. I know like CJ Allen was the one that played earlier in the year. We know that. Uh, I've said this many times in the podcast. Raylan would have played earlier, but he was hurt to open the season, and it sent him back, so his development back a little bit. But this man is so freaky. I think him and Jalen Walker are the most physically athletic inside linebackers that we have on the roster, 
And I think the sky is the absolute limit for Wilson. I believe that he will get drafted higher than C.J. Allen down the line. I, I still think C.J. Allen is a very good football player. He will get drafted high in the NFL draft eventually. But I think Raylan Wilson's physical ceiling is just a little bit higher. And I'm very excited to see what he can do next year. I thought he was fine all over the field yesterday. Again, same things that I said about Allen also apply to Wilson as well. I mean, he needs to get more decisive, a little bit faster in his reads. He needs to play downhill more, attack the blockers, meet the running backs more at the line of scrimmage. He needs to work on disengaging from blockers. But those are things, like with Allen, that come with time. Physically, though, the dude is elite. He is there. And I think both Allen and Wilson this offseason are going to take their game to an entirely different level. And then Troy Bowles, who didn't really play a lot this year. He was the third inside linebacker from last year's class, a really highly rated guy himself, but was not an early enrollee, did not come into the summer. So obviously he was behind Allen Wilson. So he didn't play as much. And I think he only had eight snaps in this game himself. But when he was out there, I thought he looked good, man. He looked fast. He looked athletic. There is only so much you can tell in eight snaps in garbage time. But I saw some encouraging things and I I saw the athleticism that I needed to see out of him when he was out there on the field. So we'll see what he can do with another offseason at the actual first full offseason that he will have in our football program. And then real quick to wrap it up here, guys, we saw our first extended run from Daniel Harris at cornerback. Yes, Kamari Lasser started, but he did not play very long because he didn't need to. And honestly, it was shocking to me that he even played at all. So tip of the cap to Kamari. That's the kind of guy he is. This kind of guy that our program is built on. But Daniel Harris played a lot. And you want you guys probably see why now that A.J. Harris entered the transfer portal. I know he was the five-star guy. And everyone's like, oh my God, this guy is falling five stars leaving Georgia. There's a reason why that's happening. Daniel Harris is legit. I am told you guys, our coaches love this dude. They've loved him all season long. Behind the scenes, he wasn't the five-star guy, but this dude has been making a move all year long and he showed exactly why our coaches are so high on him in this orange bowl against Florida State now there was that long completion they had against him but I mean guys I'm not sure you can cover a guy any better than that I mean he was right there in his hip pocket it was just a a, a really good throw by Brock Glenn the best throw he had on the entire day by far and he put the ball in about the only spot they could have put it that Daniel Harris would not have knocked that ball away but his athleticism, and more than that, his length is absurd. There's no cornerback on our roster. We have some really good cornerbacks on our roster, some very talented guys. None of them have the length that guy has. I mean, his arms are basically like, his knuckles are dragging on the ground, basically, y'all. I mean, this guy, it's crazy the length he has. I 100% expect that guy to compete for a starting job at cornerback next year. I know the expectation is that Julian Humphreys is going to be a plug-and-play there for Kamari Laster, and maybe that would be the case, but Daniel Harris is not going to go down without a fight. Now, here's what I will say. I'm going to put this out there into the universe. I don't know if any of you agree with me. That's fine. On this podcast, I come here to give you guys my takes on things, and my take is I would think long and hard about moving Dalen Everett inside to star, especially with the news that Ty Key Smith is indeed declaring for the NFL draft today. He's gone. We got, we got a hole there at star. Janelle Aguero was the backup this year. Now, he could play star, certainly. But we also have a vacancy at safety, which is what Janelle was brought in as initially with Javon Bullard also declaring for the NFL draft. So what do we do here? We're going to have some options. Obviously, we have K.J. Bolden coming in as a true freshman, but Aguero could factor in at safety. And I think Everett, with his body, could absolutely play star and be an elite star for us. Because what did we say all year? Why was... Everett out there ahead of Humphrey. Humphrey, in my opinion, is a better cover guy. But why was Everett on the field? It was because of his physicality on the perimeter in the run game. That's where he just had 
an edge on Humphrey. That, that's the reality of the situation. He was a good cover guy, but he was just more physical in the run game. And you better be physical in the run game if you want to play cornerback for Kirby Smart. And that is really where Everett excelled. Well, I just described a perfect star defender. At star, you have run fits that you don't have at cornerback. And you need a guy that will put his nose up in there and actually fit against the run and take on pullers, like take on offensive linemen. And Everett is a guy that can do that for us. And yes, Janelle Aguero can do that too. He's a big physical guy himself. But I would be tempted to at least look at the possibility of sliding Dalen Everett inside and maybe you have Julian Humphrey at one cornerback and maybe that opens up a spot for Daniel Harris. Or who knows? Maybe even Ellis Robinson, the number one cornerback in the country coming in this class. I think there's going to be a competition. There's four guys in my mind that are going to be in heavy competition for those two cornerback spots next year. Just because Everett started this year doesn't mean he's a guarantee to start at cornerback next year because we have some serious competition between him, Humphrey, Harris, and Ellis Robinson coming in. And Chris Peel is good too, guys. Our coaches really like him. He came on as the season progressed as well. Our coaches also like Kyron Jones a lot. I mean, we have a lot of talent at cornerback. It's going to be really fascinating to watch how that plays out. But all right, guys, we've gone, what, about an hour and 15 minutes now at this point. That's about all I got for today. We will be back later this week. I know there's been some some news on the roster front, some declarations for the NFL draft. I did not cover that on today's show because I wanted to focus on the Orange Bowl and I also wanted to let it play out and see who else announced so we can cover it all in like one fell swoop. So hopefully... I will have Curtis back on with me later this week, and we will definitely dive into some of those early NFL draft declarations. We'll talk about some transfer portal stuff. We might even throw some mailbag questions in there. So if you got some questions, hit us up, guys. You can find us on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can email us at GloryUJPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at GloryUJPodcast on Instagram. But once again, thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart for all of your support. This week, this month, all year long, this was a record-breaking 2023 year for us on the Glory UJ podcast, and I cannot thank you guys enough. It's all because of you. So happy new year to each and every one of you. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.